Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Welcome, 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 welcome to the most tubular, sweet podcast you are going to hear this week. Welcome. Welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. I'm your boy, Joel. And I'm Ryan. And uh, we're, um, you know, we're hitting the time when uh, when things were sweet and mint and rad. Oh, we have a rad show for you. Totally rad show. That's right. Because you know where we're going? You know where we're going? We're going to 1982. It was true in 82, and it's ready to roll. Yeah, baby. They were not saying mint nor rad in 1982. Joel is, all 80s are 86 to him, as you can tell by his hair. Pretty much. much, But that's still... Still, what are you going to do? 82 is tricky. The year in film bears this out. Um, also, I don't think I can get through 82 without swearing. And I have to say, we've been, I've been just too lazy to edit out the swear words. I know, <laughs> I know Disembodied yep. Voice says we're going to do that. But like, if it's just one mm-hmm. figure, you guys, you guys can handle that, right? We're all yeah. adults here. We like to think of ourselves as a family podcast, but I'm not sure... I'm not sure even the previous generations, mm-hmm. let alone actual children, would get anything out of listening yeah. to us talk about. Yeah, and you know, if you're if you're if you're a child and you're going, oh, I want to listen to the movie show with Joel and Ryan, you're ready for swearing. Yeah, you know, if you, if you're ready, if you're ready to hear the in depth takes that we're doing on, um, you know, on Tentacole, uh, uh, then you're ready for a little bit of swearing. And so, you know what? Actually, that's really great that you pointed out that this is a little late eighties because if it, you know, if we're going to do it, it's really, this wig is really hot. So I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> so you're just going to do it for the beginning. Yep. And I think that's yep. fair. I'm going to roll fair. with the, I'm going to roll with the double polos. Uh, but, um, <laughs> Oh, I'm going to, that wig, man, my double polos is, sweating. is very 82. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. cool. Um, that all right, really, so yeah, so we that took grunge to really make that out of style, man. Um, right, right. The double um, polos right. and the Trans Am convertible were always good. <laughs> yep, I wish I had, I wish I had, um, because I, I, I want to say that this was this might have been like 84, 85, but those sunglasses that like looped around and had like the, the little coverings for the side. Um, I think that, I don't know if that, that might've been a little bit after 82, that might've a little been bit. more like 80, 84, 85. We'll, we'll talk um, about that a little bit when we get into it. We got a few people and this is sort of short shift to say goodbye to these folks. 
Oh, right. Yes. We need to maybe, little... I mean, but we've had quite a couple of days in a row there where some real luminaries and movies, uh, checked off this mortal coil and, mm-hmm. and it, we should at least mention them and then maybe talk more about them later. But the first was Bob Raffleson, um, who I am a huge fan of, even though I'm not a huge fan of, uh, it's kind of weird. Bob, Bob's production company, uh, BBS Productions, which brought into being really a, an entire paradigm shift in cinema. And it, it just can't be undersold how important it was. Uh, they produced um, not just Bob's, like I said, his three big movies of the early 70s, um, the Monkees film, which if you're a Monkees fan, surely you've seen this, one of the weirdest Mm-hmm. movies out there really doubles down on the non sequitur bizarreness and it's a, it, and it's very stylish and very fun to watch um head it's simply called uh yep. if you're a monkeys fan and you haven't seen head you got to see it if you just enjoy that uh, the it's just absurd pageantry it's you should see it you know what i mean so mm-hmm. that's that's a fun movie that is not normally my style of film but because I don't really love the Beatles films and I, I don't get real, I wasn't alive then and I don't really get nostalgic for that sort of thing, but I had a really, really good time at head. I don't even really like the monkeys. So there you go. <laughs> so it's, it, there you go. It, it's, it's cinema in its own right. It's really good. It compels you. Even if, you know, even if there's, I'm a bit of a narrative snob and there isn't a narrative at all. It's an anti-narrative and it's still just really, really fun. It's like an early, stab at the craziest sort of music videos you remember when that all started Mm -hmm. um he also made five easy pieces with jack nicholson and then later as an answer to that which they thought was a little conventional they made an incredible movie called the king of marvin gardens bruce stern and and nicholson in that and that's to me that's a masterwork he went on to make other things Uh, our friend michael called out he, he did a conventional thriller that's sort of interesting in the 80s uh black widow oh yeah and in 1990 he made a a film called uh, mountains of the moon which it just it's just an incredible thing it's just like a it's hard to explain what it even is i mean it's just a historical drama but it's so much more than that um so raffleson as an artist in his own right but he also was instrumental the most instrumental into bringing in to being Easy Rider, which really did change films, and then later uh, Last Picture Show, which absolutely, which was the change, not having begun but having arrived very much with that film. Mm-hmm. Um, even though that's a throwback in some ways, and I'm not a big Dennis Hopper fan, and I'm not a big Peter Bogdanovich fan. God rest his soul too. But you can't deny taken as a group. You just can't deny the the intense paradigm shift in storytelling. It didn't last forever. You know, disaster movies came and then Star Wars came out and a lot of that sort of 70s auteur thing was, was lost as soon as it was found. But for a time, just amazing stuff. And, and you know, he gets the credit for that. He was a fantastic dude and his films themselves are... To, in my opinion, in that group of movies, are the, they're they're not necessarily the most famous ones when you put them up next to something generationally iconic like Last Picture Show and Easy Rider, but 
he was making the best movies during that era, in my opinion, and continued mm-hmm. to insist on making interesting stuff, even in 1990, even when it was super out of vogue, you know? The people who made, the people who produced, and the studio who made Total Recall in the summer of 1990 were the people he convinced to pay for Mountains on the Moon, which to me just blows my mind. I can't believe those same people made those two movies. It's just... right. It's not the same crew or anything, but it it that's that's amazing to me, and that's his force of will to get his stories told. It's awesome. Then uh, just a couple days later, David Warner. Well, there's a David yep. Warner movie on our list today, um, so we'll talk about him again. Uh, I don't know how to explain how influential he's been over the years because he just switched. I mean, for all of for all of our lifetimes, really, because he came into vogue kind of in the early 70s in a lot of really formal uh, British literature adaptations, but yeah, yeah. also the Peckinpah film where he played the preacher, which everybody has to see that uh, ballad of, I can't remember the name, it's a name, it's a proper name, boo. Uh, of Cable Hogue. Cable Hogue, thank you. Uh, that's, a lot of you guys haven't seen that, you know. You, you remember him from The Omen, which was just a couple years later. And I, I remember him from that, too. He's fantastic in that with his little scarves. And his weird. he's a super tall guy in this kind of lanky way that he moved as a young man. And then this kind of statuesque formality that he adopted as an older guy. Like, just... Mm-hmm. He played tons of villains. He played tons of just lovable, squeezable sweethearts. He could just, to- with that Royal Shakespeare voice that he had, he could just do anything. And it, it, uh, the magic of him and the w- way he punctuated the films of our youth in particular, but 227 or something screen credits. I mean, unbelievable yeah. career David Warner yep. had. And then later that day, man, Paul Servino died. Right. That's heartbreaking. I wrote up a thing on Paul Servino that I'm proud of, calling out some of his highlights. Obviously, Paul Paul was the understated gangster, you know? The gangster who listened is what I call him. Because every in every scene, the power of him is always... He, he just understood... And I think the roles were written for him this way because he's so good at this. But it he just understood the power of sitting there listening and not showing your cards in these you know, guy in charge of the mob scenes. He was in many, many of them. Think of the one in The Firm. You know, you you have to bring a dude in. He's not even credited. He's in one scene. You've been talking about these, the Memphis group or whatever, or the Chicago group, like they're the boogeyman. And suddenly you got to have a couple of guys sitting there on a couch listening to this pitch from our hero. And he just... Hardly says a thing, but his presence is just boom. And that's not like right. his best role, but I think it really on on three pages sums up how great he was. And mm-hmm. I pointed out, you know, he played cops and he played, you know, all these other things just as often as he played gangsters. But I think we remember him as a gangster. I said the thing I'll remember Paul for, other other than Henry Kissinger, which is just that is not a, I'm sorry, that's not an easy role to play. Because you have to do an impression to do it. Right. You have to. And it so easily could become just an impression of Henry Kitchener's weird speech patterns, of his accent, of his, you know, he's such a character in history. And Paul brings all the humanity and weight to this dude. 
in Oliver Stone's Nixon. It's a tour de force performance, and she was rightly nominated for an Oscar. But Paul's great to me. Paul's greatest moment in movies was when when uh, Mira Servino won the Oscar, and they he was in the audience, and they cut to him, and the the big scary stare you down, you know, blank expression gangster guy was just sobbing and so proud that. That that mm-hmm. fatherly pride, I'll, I'll never ever forget that. I only, I don't go back and relive Oscar moments ever. I've only saw that the night it happened, but that was the moment of the night was the cut to Paul in the audience, and you know, and yeah, and then other things happened and that like they always do. But he was a great actor too. So sorry for take. We really have a show we got to barrel through. Mm-hmm. Sorry for taking the time with those losses and for not really giving them their due. I I could talk about David Warner for two whole episodes. Right, he's my kind of guy, <laughs> really um, and truly. He's right. why we do this so we can shine a spotlight on people like him. That it's really true. And mm-hmm. but I, all three of those cats, you know, right. we love them. Real, real quick, two, uh, two other actors that I really like. Um, Bernard Cribbins died. Bernard Cribbins, oh, yeah. uh, m- most notably from Doctor Who, yeah, yeah. Uh, amongst many, many other things. Um, uh, he passed away this past week as well. Love Bernard Cribbins and Mary Alice, who was in like Fences in a Different World and uh, Matrix. Uh, the Matrix. Movie. Mary Alice very famously mm-hmm. took over for her best friend who died yep. in between Matrix sequels. We talked a little bit about mm-hmm. that in our Matrix show. As, as the Oracle, yeah. It was, I, I, and that's her, Mary's legacy really is more on the stage and in other mm-hmm. venues than, than her appearance in this high profile, big budget Hollywood thing. But I loved that it was that connection. Those two women had done this same show together for ages. And when one of them was lost prematurely in that project, they, they just hoped and prayed that they could ask her friend to come in and embody her in some in some way, and she does she does that with a lot of ease and grace in what becomes a very important role in that third Matrix film. Right. Um, yeah. So she's she was a special performer too, no yep. question. All right. So let's. Um, so so today's show is going to focus on, as we mentioned, is going to focus on the year 1982. A lot of amazing films came out in 1982. Lots of just lots of lots of movies that are pretty iconic and kind of shaped a lot of films going forward. A lot of things that were like, oh, my God. So, you know, so the idea behind this is that we're going to just start. The, the year has turned. It is a lovely January winter in Minnesota. And we're and you're flipping through the Star Tribune to see, oh, what is playing over at the Brooklyn Park uh, Cineplex? I can't remember what that movie theater was called that we used to go to. Wasn't there in 82. <laughs> Wasn't there in 82? Well, I thought it was there. Or, or it was just about to be built in 82. It was made yeah. around that time. The, of course, the Brookdale Cinema in 82 was still that big white, round behemoth the, right the the plit show plays yeah um but we uh but it, and this this is also the year of uh of my uh one of one of the most seminal memories i have of my youth uh, at but you're, i think you're and, right joel i should correct myself i think i saw cron at the at the United Artists brownstone yeah. building, and if I did, then it had to have been there. Yeah. But this was really its appearance was right mm-hmm. here, basically. Yep. 
Yeah. So yeah. So you're um, right. So yeah. So what? And then I'll when we get to it in the year, I'll 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 relive my I'll I'll share once again my great uh my favorite drive-in movie experience that I ever had. Nice. Um, but so here we go. We are gonna do a little throwback. The year is nineteen. 19- 82. We are here. The bangs are high and the collars are popped. Let's uh, so January 1982. We're sitting there, uh, just got done uh, with Christmas, and um, heading on into like okay, head, starting to head back to school for for those of us. Um, and of course, uh, like any youths, we are super excited about the latest Diane Keaton Albert Finney movie that uh, is released. <laughs> uh, no, but Alan Parker's Shoot the Moon. Uh, comes out uh, in that in January, and it's one of the first major releases of the year. Shoot the Moon is a, a dear listener's favorite film of all time. I happen to know that for a fact. Um, and we talked about it a little bit when we talked about Alan Parker after his passing. We sort of ran through all of his movies in order. This is an Alan Parker movie. Albert Finney and Diane Keaton. It's part of a cycle of films. There's mm-hmm. one more this year. It's kind of at the end of the cycle, but perhaps they're starting to, you know, perfect them at this point, maybe. But kind of started with uh, Kramer versus Kramer. And there was a film before that, too, actually, that technically started it. But these sort of uh, ordinary people, I think, counts as one of them. Uh, yeah. It's this domestic film about this family. And, and in that way, there's a there's a subtly tea to it and uh modesty to it i guess there's no spectacle mm-hmm. in any of these films and yet they have to be more than typical television melodrama it, that's not enough you have to you you each of these has to have something profound about them to set themselves apart from, frankly, what was a really, really good era in the TV family melodrama. You know what I mean? The stuff that was on TV in the late 70s and early 80s really did that as well as anything. So to take it to the cinema, yeah, you needed big stars and stuff. But part of the thing was, like with Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People, was... um recognizable actors if not stars but you know people at the top of their game doing something different doing playing people like you and me that was a real appeal and of course Mm -hmm. the studios loved it these films this one's no exceptions tend to garner awards season glory or at least awards season attention which helps give them an extra bit of box office life if nothing else um shoot the moon's a, a wonderful movie of those films I really like Ordinary People. I don't really love Kramer versus Kramer, but mm-hmm. it, Shoot the Moon's one of the most um, lyrical ones because it is about this American family, and yet it's made by this crew and this British film director, and he has sort of a different... There's a different take. There's a there's an extra element of cinematic magic added to the simple story and sad story of a family 
fallen apart and it doesn't happen like in the film and, and like in life, most of the time, it doesn't happen yeah. with some incident that's easy to dissect as we move through the story. It, it just, the cracks start to show and things just start to go and, and, and you love everybody and you want it to work out or at the end, you just want everyone to emotionally survive the thing. So yeah. I really, really like shoot the moon. That's a great way to start this. And yeah, I, I, it's not the first time we've talked about it, and it shouldn't be the last. That movie deserves a little bit of attention. Perhaps someday, when the rights holders decide to put that out in, in a sort of acceptable way, I'll get to really revisit it in, in all its glory, and, mm -hmm. and we can totally dig in and talk about it. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe someday we just really want to punish ourselves, and we'll do a countdown of, like, top five movie divorces. Yeah. yeah. Um, Maybe. Yeah, like... There was so there was uh yeah shoot the moon the champ uh table for five heartburn irreconcilable differences um yeah that we had a whole run of uh of divorce movies in this uh in this period um yeah shoot the moon um so then uh that you know that kicks off the year and then a couple weeks later uh we get Tony Richardson's The Border. Ah, with Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, Harvey Keitel. Do you have a plot synopsis for The Border? I think that'll help me not be so long-winded just trying to explain what happens. Yeah, I mean, uh, so it, the, the one-liner is a corrupt border agent decides to clean up his act when an impoverished woman's baby is put up for sale on the black market. So it's... And it, hilarity it, ensues. <laughs> it's a very serious late 70s yeah. style style movie. It's one of Jack Nicholson's. It's I don't know if it's one of his favorite movies. It's one where when he's asked that, what's your favorite movie question, he will bring it up repeatedly because, because it was lost along the way. Mm -hmm. It really was a film that nobody thinks about, most haven't heard of. And he would always and he would always use that lame question that he gets asked in all his weird interviews to bring the border back into the public view, at least momentarily. Um, and it really is what it says. It's, 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 it's this guy who does want to go straight. And then he's sort of given a weird reason, like a corrupt border agent who suddenly finds himself outside the rules for, for purely altruistic reasons. And mm -hmm. that's the tug and pull of the thing, but it's, it is so much slice of life scenes, you know, with his who he's dating and what he's doing, and it, it's just very much you just spend the movie with this guy as a fly on the wall for these certain weeks of his life, and it's not, it's not. You'll see as we move through this list, it's it's not enjoyable. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain. It, that's not to say that it's not good, but it's not. It's it, yeah. This is really like... doesn't care if you're having a good time at the movies when you're watching the thing, <laughs> right? And that gives it a kind of power. It gives it an authority yeah. in storytelling because we're not used to that. We're used to being pandered to and manipulated, and that's honestly, oh, that's, yeah. When we sit down and buy our popcorn, that's what we expect. Even with something like Shoot the Moon, it's it. The trailer tells you what it is, and you're going to go one way or another. You're going to go through that experience. This movie, like, it doesn't really tell you what it is, and you don't really know. And by the time it's over, you're not really sure how you're supposed to feel about it all. And that, in this era, that's, that's you know, just a few years before, that wouldn't be so weird. But in this era, that's a weird 
way to go about your story. And yeah. I, I recommend the border. It's, it's, it's worth checking out. It's a, it's a quiet, it's not co- contemplative because you know, it's Nicholson. He's a, he's a loud mouth. He's all the things that he is in movies of this era, but, mm-hmm. but he's, a, it, it really is a, a, bring that, that big Hollywood personality down into a very real dirty, not a lot of money, not very glamorous part of the world and and mm-hmm. and spend time with them. The border's a good one. That's a very good yeah. movie. Sorry if I I'm, it's hard to explain it because it Well, yeah, I mean, well, I mean the the you know, you got a guy who just is he's he's not a you know, he's not a great guy trying to just do the best he can. But then then when you know this the you know these guys are going to sell a baby on the black market and that is the bridge too far. Right. And he needs to, uh, what I love is that, you know, you, you just say, uh, this guy's going to try to help the, the, these people because, uh, he's going to sell a baby. And, and then you hear that they actually had to reshoot the ending. Cause the ending was even too, was even too big of a downer yeah. for audiences. They had to redo it so that it was <laughs> a little more open-ended, which I, yeah. you know, normally I'm like, wow, you have corrupted the filmmakers vision, <laughs> you know, and I, I tend to go yeah. for the original endings, but I think they're right. They're, you you got to, you know, it, mm-hmm. you, 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 it, there are times where you got to be able to go out in the world and believe that life goes on and there's a chance for something, mm-hmm. the next thing, whatever it is. And that's the ending that this movie really has to give us. And I'm glad they, they made that change. Honestly. Yeah. Um, I feel a little bit bad, but uh, for our next movie, um, I really, uh, I really want to play, hold on one moment here. Uh, I want to play, where are you? Uh, I it just popped into my head. And so, oh yeah, I kind of want to say. Based on the incredible true story. <laughs> yeah, we have, uh, so in February we get. Um, you have the harpsichord all queued up and ready to rock at a moment's notice. And yet you have based on an incredible true story buried. <laughs> well, in there I have the, I have this ready because it was just from last week. Okay. It's just from last, so it's still yeah, at the top yeah. of my sound. I know sounders. where your priorities are. <laughs> so now that I know where it is, I can just be like, I can hit, go, oh, you know what I can also do? Ripped from the headlines. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, you got to pick. <laughs> No, no, this one is definitely incredible true story. Uh, this is uh, one of those Disney movies that we uh, that was, uh, you know, Disney drama. It was a Disney drama. Yeah. Um, and this is uh, Night Crossing by Delbert Mann. It's uh, the story of, you know, when Germany was split in two, uh, you know, East trying to get out of East Germany. That was uh, that was a harrowing, uh, harrowing. Well, and specifically in this film, it's East Berlin. Yeah, because Berlin wasn't like on the border of East and West Germany. It was in West yeah. Germany, but split in half and walled off like an old medieval mm-hmm. kingdom, basically. The Berlin yeah. Wall, right? Just sorry if I'm talking down to people, but it's important to sort of understand that that there was this city in isolation that really was like a microcosm of what was happening in Greater Germany after World War II, yeah. and that's that's weird and. So unlike being living somewhere in East Germany and, and, you know, not really liking being part of the communist regime, um, in Berlin, you were surrounded on all sides by freedom, basically, or, you know, what was perceived as freedom at the time. 
Um, these they don't show these uh, people. Uh, John Hurt and Bo Bridges play the matriarchs or the patriarchs of these two families that are wrapped up in this escape attempt. Hurt's fantastic in it. Uh, Delbert Mann's a super old school British filmmaker, and he just he points and shoots, and he mm -hmm. knows when the it's exciting, and he knows when you know whatever you know he knows how to shoot. Four people talking around a table. That's not a super easy thing to do, but he gets he gets it. It's fun. He gets the majesty of that glowing balloon rising up over the European city. It's it's awesome. We talked about it a little bit back with Brian when we did our Disney movies of this era. This is right in the heart of that weird Disney trying to be something different. And this was a shot at a like a prestige style bit of real life yeah. storytelling. Um, but it's great. It's a true story. It's been remade recently by Germans as the balloon. That's just four years ago or so. I, I highly recommend that movie as well. Both of them are really, really outstanding, uh, familial cold war thrillers that, are really, really great. And I won't spoil the details. There's a lot you could talk about with Night Crossing. I was really excited about it back then and I didn't want to spoil the details. And we're talking about it again because it's from 1982. But uh, it, it, the big thing that goes wrong in their plan is a thing that is almost an insurmountable thing for them to overcome. I'll just say that. And that they persevere and find a way to do it and and that the movie so both movies really demonstrate that they had to once they tried to get out and what they tried could be easily traced to them maybe not easily in that it would happen in an afternoon it might take the authorities a couple weeks but at some point it was all the evidence was going to lead back to them they knew that mm -hmm. so they had to keep going they couldn't just say whoop there goes that idea. <laughs> they right. Go on with their lives. They had to. They had to get out at that point. It was no longer a choice. But both films are interesting in that they don't show. They don't have that scene of oppression, or you know what I mean. You can definitely feel the weight of the of the government around them, but they they're not suffering people. You know what I mean. It's hard to explain. Yeah. So they're 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 wanting to get to the west. Because it's still Germany. That's the other weird thing that I think it's hard for us to wrap our brain around. This isn't a Russian defecting, you know, Russian violinist defecting to America. That's an easy story to sort of understand. The, these were Germans who lived next door to Germans whose complete way of life were completely different by this point mm -hmm. in time. It's really, really interesting. And it was a very interesting story to tell in 1982. And it is... I, I don't know if it's on Disney Plus. I'd like to think that it is, but it. it oh, that's a very good question. But Let you should you should check it out and see if it is. It it has it has a high definition broadcast version that I watch from time to time. So it's been prepped by Disney for Disney Plus exhibition, but I don't know if it's actually on it. If it is, yeah, according if to it this, is, it's by all not. means, check it out. According to IMDb, it is not. But let me. Uh... It was, back in the day. It was one of those. Remember when Amazon had every movie, and you were just like, oh my "Yeah, God, it's, they it's have still it. available. It's still available. Yeah, you can rent it on Amazon." Um, but um, it, yeah, that's but worth doing too. If it's three bucks or four bucks, it it's a great. 
uh, serious but yeah. still great family adventure from 1982 with, with yeah, the weight of not available. Boy, Disney, get on that. That's a, that, it's a good movie. Be, I mean, it's one of my to. favorites because it just – when I was 10, it, it, even though I wasn't really following the intricacies of it, the mm-hmm. – the I was taken by the by the by just the audaciousness of their plan. I yeah, really yeah, like I, I, yeah, I remember Night Crossing too. Okay, so we're sitting here. So it's February, uh, you know. So we got it now. We got to get ready for uh, Valentine's Day and movies of love and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, so we're gonna get um, based on the John Steinbeck novel uh, is Cannery Row. Hey, we talked about Cannery Row before, right? On the HBO mm-hmm. show. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a lot of that. So, 82, I, I, liked, I said last week, we like to travel back to 1982. At least I do a lot. This is when my idea of what movies were and should be was really formulated. And Cannery Row, even though it's, it's a total throwback, it's a Depression-era movie um, that's made in this sort of almost 50s madcap, kind of style as we said when we talked about it before on the hbo show it's 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 staged you know the entire thing the entire depression era is built and the film almost feels like it's a depression era amusement park ride rather than an actual story that you're being told in an authentic way and Mm -hmm. but that's the joy of the thing it's 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 artifice and it's theatricality is what's so fun about it. And then the other thing that's fun about it that we talked about before, um, other than just Nick Nolte and Deborah Winger, tip top, really good time to see a movie starring either of those people. Uh, we'll definitely talk about Deborah again here in a bit, but she was, I hate to say this, this is a demeaning thing, but I think it's so funny. John Houston, when it was asked about making Prissy's Honor or whatever, and all he talked about the whole time was Jack Nicholson, this, Jack Nicholson, that. Jack Nicholson's so awesome. And finally, the interviewer was like, you know, what'd you think about Kathleen Turner? I mean, she's pretty awesome, too. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was the prize filly of her day, is what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Which... Ladies, that was a compliment coming from John Houston, but it's one of the most like just hilariously old school demeaning things I've ever heard. Kathleen Turner was that she was the it girl for this period in time. And she absolutely was when she made that movie. And we, we acknowledge that sort of thing on here, but the prize Philly comparing her to a horse. (laughs) Yep. And moving right on without talking about her substantively in his film in any way was just so old school, idiot, male dismissiveness. It just summed it all up. And it's even the way he said it in this 1920s gangster sort of way is crazy. So Deborah Winger, man, she was the prize filly of her day. What do you want me to say? There you go. Yeah, she was as good Um, as you. I think she was as good as you could do. And you could try and prove me wrong in 1982, but I don't think you can. She's awesome. And she's awesome in this, even though this role is kind of, it's goofy. And of course, Cannery Row has, uh, isn't just that, that Steinbeck's one of his lighter stories, but it's his lightest of all time short story is edited in um, with the frogs and stuff. I can't remember what it's called, uh, but it's, it's. It's Sorry, I... it's the opposite of the border. It's pure, even though it's from a different era and a throwback. It's pure audience 
romantic, you know what I mean? Hepburn mm-hmm. and Tracy, rat-a-tat-tat, sort of will-they-or-won't-they movie enjoyment and mixed with the really well-shot, well-lit sort of artificial sets and stuff. It's it's glorious. The movie it reminds me most of is, is Altman's Popeye because that film's similarly yeah. built yeah, from the yeah. ground up. It's this fake fantasy world of a place that you live in for a time, and it, it's a fun place. I keep revisiting it all the time. My and, and it's one of those few movies that my folks adored and were like, well, you need to watch this, and you kids will love this. And we, and, and we were like, yeah, whatever. And we did. And the fact that you can all get on board at that back during this era is that's neat. That's an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on the other end of the, uh, I mean, there's also uh, a, a great movie, but not, you know, not really one that's like, oh, hey, this will be a lot of fun. Um, we have uh, Missing, Jack Lemon, Sissy Spacek. Uh, Costa Gravis's. Costa uh, Gravis. Yeah, Gavras, yeah. Largely considered the greatest political filmmaker of all time. And was pretty much already, because this previous two movies were so good. Um, and this was his first English language film. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek. Wait, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Sissy Spacek was playing a teenager in a movie. Uh, it was the year before, really. And that you know, so now she's married to Jack Lemmon, which is weird because Jack Lemmon. No, though, not no. Jack Lemmon's the dad. Uh, she's married to. Oh, she's uh, married to the guy who goes missing. To the, That's right. Yeah, the uh, to uh, John John Shay. Makes more sense. John Shea's really good in this too. Well, mm-hmm. anyway, they're that's right. They're both really, really good. They're both a couple of Americans who are related to this guy who goes missing. That's mm-hmm. the title. Um, in a this South America, yeah, in a South American, on the incredible true story. Yeah, in a yeah. South American country, and the whole film is this sort of wake up call. You know that what and it's. It, it's not played in a preachy way, so I don't want to mean like it's take this, you Americans. But it, these people are used to a certain amount of thing. They're used to calling the authorities. They're used to getting attention. They're used to getting assistance. They get they get nothing out of this situation. And it's it's a real nightmare for them that they're in a foreign land with no power, with nobody who really wants to help them or respects them in the slightest. And they kind of have to go it alone. Mm-hmm. And... In a worse movie, you know, that would have a, a triumphant reunion at the end of it. But that's maybe not necessarily what happens here. It's got a very weird stylistic but really lovely uh, Vangelis musical score. Um, it's just incredible, like, shot out the window of the hotel at the at a third world yeah. um, In Chile, basically uh, fascist regime. Yeah. And it you it as a, just as a travelogue, it has real value, and all the yeah. leads are as good as you could expect. They're the exact right people to be in it. So, Missing's a great movie. Also, it's it was a Criterion DVD, I believe, but it has not been well preserved on video because kind of like Shoot the Moon. I mean, it's not one of those it's not one of those things you want to go back and watch a hundred times. Even people who love it, it's not one you're going to revisit over and over again because it's. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of torture to get through it, but that's a super powerful film. It's it's Gravis's best uh, English language movie. He went on to make a few other really compelling stories, but this this feels like it was the story he was meant to tell, and it's kind of this perfect marriage of 
of his his political know-how and you're really feeling like you're getting authenticity and and it's great that it's an outsider a european outsider telling this sort of central american story with these american actors it's just a mix of magic really it's yeah. missing it's so good and yet you gotta you really gotta want to dive into serious films and sorry i mixed up the relationships it's been yeah. ages since I've seen Missing. I it's, saw yeah, it that when one's... I was a kid, when I was a teenager, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so our next movie is uh, Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart, and I and I gotta read the little the little liner here on IMDb because sure. it's easily one of my favorite that I've read. So Francis Ford Coppola presents One from the Heart. A couple has a fight after living together five years in Las Vegas. They go out and celebrate the Fourth of July, each with a new partner. Breakup. <laughs> <laughs> well done whoever wrote that usually it's <laughs> like, usually it's anonymous that writes it he writes the best ones. break up um he or she um yeah. this movie doesn't count i screwed this up so but well, let's talk about it briefly for what it is and i'm glad we got to read that synopsis because i have the same yes re- i had the same reaction when i wrote when i read it break up it's first of all it's a musical eight 1982 and musicals holy moses Yep. There's a bunch of them, y'all. What? All the, the and most of them put out by the old MGM studios, which is crazy. Because what are they doing? Make they don't have any money. You know what I mean? What right. are they doing making musicals in 1982? But there's a whole bunch of them coming up. This movie technically came out in 1981. So okay, here, sorry, movie minutia time. Sorry, we don't have a fanfare to play when I do this, but you're used to it by now. Um. Yeah. This film came out in the award season for 1981. It was released at the end of the year in 1981, so that it would be eligible for the Oscars in 1982. This is super common. This it doesn't happen with every movie. Sometimes prestige movies come out in March because they didn't know they were going to be prestige movies, like Silence of the Lambs comes to mind or something like that. Um, but but usually there's a whole award season junket that happens and official release dates are right there at the end of the year so that they can be eligible. That's the only reason they're released that year. And I'm very, very strict. It's not to say there aren't exceptions to the rule, but I'm very, very strict about, all right, you, you, you screened in front of people in 1981 for a reason. You're a 1981 movie, right? Which one from the heart is, even though most people didn't see it, they wouldn't even have a chance to see it until now, right around the time the Oscars would have aired. I don't remember one from the heart winning many Oscars. It might have been nominated for one. It's visually an impressive film, and it's it's a it's a unlike some of these, it's not a throwback story. It's a kind of modern story with music. It's Coppola, you know, mm-hmm. an award season maestro in, yeah. in recent memory. But it it's a nineteen eighty one film. There's only one movie on this list, so I'm disqualifying it. There's from nineteen eighty two. There's only one movie on this list that I'm not. I'm leaving it in 1982, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. And if you can yeah. figure it out, then you're awesome. And if you can't, then what difference does it make? But well, you get the you'll get the extra gold star. But this isn't it, and that's why when I said when I wrote to Joel earlier in the week, I'm like in calendar releases only. You know, because Quest for Fire, it's 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 film life really was in 1982 it was released way back early in 1981 but it had this long international rollout and in an america almost all americans saw it in 1982 at the theaters and right. that was a pretty big hit movie um there's some other movies too that 
had similar stories that were 1982 films that were saying, nope, 1981. This is one of them. It gives me a chance to talk about that. It gives us a sneaky chance to go, ooh, it, a mm -hmm. musical. I wonder if there will be more musicals. There will be. There are a couple more coming right up. Um, but it's technically... For All award right. season failure reasons, mm -hmm. I shouldn't have included it on this list. I tried to be careful about that, but it's hard because you go to Wikipedia or whatever, and they really view this as a 1982 film because its its main release happened in didn't just happen in '82. It happened in you know two months into '82. So right, I get it, but. Um... No. All right. Well, you know, it, it, let's let's go to the other side of of crazy and bonkers, and uh, let's let's pair up Gary Busey and Willie Nelson for Barbarossa. Yeah, a western at a time when nobody mm -hmm. wanted to go see a western. Yep. Um, but this movie's really, really good, and people who forget that Gary Busey was good because he was. And it's easy to forget because he's just a madman. I understand that. He, that was even part of his shtick at this point in his career. But he right. really was a good knowing actor. And Willie Nelson, I think this is his second movie, was a really, was a surprisingly good actor too for a guy who was already super famous for being otherwise and would remain yeah. famous mostly for being otherwise. Um Nelson's great in this film. So it's a buddy, you know, it's it's a young hothead meets up with a grizzled old gunslinger and each of them get wrapped up in their stories. It's shot by Fred Skepsi, who um, we talked about a few weeks back when we talked about Roxanne. He directed The Russia House, which is one of my favorite Cold War movies of all time. He released Iceman, which is my favorite, I don't know what you call it, anthropological thriller. It's pretty much the only anthropological yeah. thriller ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, except for Encino Man. I mean, yeah. really, well, it's Iceman the, and Encino Man. That'd be the other one. There's the yeah. two titans of yeah. anthropology. <laughs> um, you know, he's a, just a, he's a Russian, uh, or he's an Australian filmmaker. Um, when we had our Australian guest on here, he, he I, it was the first time I ever heard his name pronounced right. And I feel like I've got it right every time, so I sort of learned. So thank you, Um for that chris yeah yeah chris he, he was great uh, he he follows the show i don't know if he sits there and listens to us every week i doubt it but he follows the show which we appreciate <laughs> um and we we'll said at the time we got to get chris back on just to talk yeah, about we'll whatever, figure out a whatever chris to wants get to talk on. about yeah. you know yeah and we really should see if michael can reach out and make that happen because that was such a fun show with him and he's the reason i said fred skepsi right Mm -hmm. uh, and have ever since he for years yeah yeah well i got to to be fair to be fair yeah saying shapeasy uh, is feels, so much more fun it feels good it feels good on oh, the tongue feels the good teeth. yep yep fred shapeasy but that's not what it is we need to call the man give the man his due also, um, officially, we can say it took decades to of long research. It is not Martin Scorchese. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Which nobody has ever said, but one person in the history of humanity. It is Martin Scorsese, just as you yeah. hear everyone else say in every other situation. Um, it might have been one of those names that evolved from childhood a little bit. That happens, but mm -hmm. that doesn't count. 
Um, let's move on to another uh, bonkers. Uh, le- you know, Barbosa is a good Western. Just yeah. In, sorry. In a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's yeah, nothing it's, you haven't seen before, but it's very existence here in this particular landscape is makes it unique. It's the Western of 1982 for my money. And mm-hmm. that's saying something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and it wasn't, unc- you know, there were, you know, you had John Denver and Willie Nelson and you had, uh, you know, uh, Mac Davis and, and Kenny you had Rogers all these Kenny up. Rogers. You had all these country singers <laughs> that made this easy transition um, over into film. It was uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a it was a beautiful time. Um, speaking Will, of beautiful Willie times, Nelson is legit good in everything he should yeah, yeah. have been as an actor. And eventually mm-hmm. he was he didn't do it forever, but you know, he was really, really good in his debut in Electric Horseman. He picked his projects very, very carefully. And when he became uh, the star of a couple of movies uh, a few years from now, he was rock solid in them. And then he's kind of, he was like, okay, been there, done that. Yep. Moving on. And it's just worth noting. And, and Gary Busey's not, wasn't always, weirder than good he had the balance just kind of perfect for 10 12 years honestly and mm-hmm. he's worth he's great in both since maybe it's his best role as a young man for sure beats silver bullet anyway um did you uh in your life had you ever wanted to see uh sasquatch uh fight someone with a sword yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah well most people i think most people had oh, yeah. um and thank goodness for Swamp Thing, so that we could get that. So we have, yeah, uh, a violent incident with a special chemical research scientist is turned into a swamp plant monster. So he lives in a swamp. And, you know, when you live in a swamp, sometimes you get some undesirables coming and hanging out in your in your swamp area and you got to take care of them. And you got to kick environmental fun. ass is what you got to do. It's what you got to do. Yep, swamp and- Thing, 1982, <laughs> Wes Craven. Yeah, well... It's weird all the things we remember Wes Craven for. It's it's we- a little weird to me. Maybe I, we're not. We're neither Joel and I are real horror um, nuts, especially from this era. We we saved them all for one little lit, giant list. And but there was in 1982 there was a tits and ass movie and a slasher movie that came out every month at least, and sometimes mm-hmm. more. Those aren't on the list in general. We'll cover some of the horror highlights when we get to Halloween, but they were. They were spread out throughout the year. There was a slasher movie constantly during this era. Constantly in 1982 was really the zenith of that particular pile of crap movie uh, storytelling style. Um, So we're ignoring some of that. We are ignoring some of the straight-to-video classics of the era. Swamp Thing's something else entirely. Swamp Thing's a comic book adaptation, and Mm -hmm. it's a really uh, amazing one. And I think it'd be remembered... As I think people remember who remember it at all remember it fondly, but I think it would be remembered as being a real accomplishment more if sort of the ultimate horror comic book movie didn't come out later this same year. And I think that's like there's in a lot of our movie history, there's kind of only room for one of those, you know, you don't, you don't, and you kind of forget about the other one. And yeah. the right one won in this circumstance, but. Swamp Thing is gonzo. It's super weird. It's really weird. It's absolutely a horror film, so don't don't mistake it for a fun, you know, comic book film. But it's also a weird comic book sort of alter ego, you know, 
uh, not alter ego, but you know, uh, per, you know, what do you call the protagonists who are alt hero or whatever? Hey, it, all, uh, yeah, anti hero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it it's a it's cool and it's done with a lot of style. And if it had been a bigger hit, it it because. Wes Craven, not that he didn't have his flirtation here or there, but he never, ever made it out of horror movies. And partly he loved horror movies, so that's fine. But but you really do feel like he'd rather had some variety in his career. And this, is this this had this made more of a cultural impact, would have been a step into something different, because it is mm-hmm. something different. Um, but it... It didn't, but it's still worth your time. If you're if you're a fan of anybody involved in the thing, or just want to see what a 1982 comic book sort of gross out comic book movie is, right? This is the this is the best one. You know, there's there's all there's a whole bunch of them. The the Toxic Avenger and the Annihilator, and there's all these mm-hmm. goofy stories. This this is the one where the Swamp Thing really was a, a very popular comic book hero in his day, and 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 this was a really good adaptation yeah. of it on a budget by a very innovative filmmaker. So there you go. Um, all right, next up, so we moved on to March. We are into March, people, and uh, first up in March we have uh, Sidney Lumet doing and and Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. And doing uh, great, Diane great Cannon. Fun. There's really only three Cannon. people in the yep. movie, so we should probably yeah. name all three of them. Um, yes, that's true. I, 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 I've done this stage, uh, this the the stage version oh, yeah? of this. And Were it's, you in uh, the Christopher Reeve role? I was Chris. I was in the Christopher Reeve role. I'll I bet was, you were. I mean, obviously, many many moons ago. Yeah. Um, but that movie uh, it is Death Trap. Fun, fun, silly mystery. Yeah, where it's they're not really a mystery. Not um, a mystery, yeah, but like... Just no, but it, it has a... a and, yeah. Calling it a mystery is not wrong because it absolutely has that stage play mystery feel to it. Even though mm-hmm. even, there's certainly plot twists in it, but there's there's no mystery that's being solved. That's that, To me, that's the thing that's interesting about it. And it's about these two guys writing, uh, collaborating on an art form together that is the thing that you're watching. So there's this very knowing looking mm-hmm. at it from up here where you can just sort of kick back and enjoy it. And if somebody has to die, well, it's just a, it's just a comedy, you know, whatever. Don't get too wrapped up in anything. Um, yeah, yeah. It's fun. It's a fun movie. It's still a fun movie to this day. I think it's a, it is a little stagey. This was made very, very fast. It's yeah. there's a couple of filmmakers who have two films in 1982. Some would say three, but I'm going to say two. Which is something I thought you weren't supposed to be able to do if you were in the Directors Guild. But Sidney Lumet definitely had two big releases. This is the first of them. And this is the fun one. This is the, hey, this will be fun. Let's do a... This play is very, very popular. It's 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 had its stage life to a certain degree. Now it's time for the movie version. And here's something we can do with a couple of big stars that are really, yeah, really yeah. well cast. Kane and Reeve... This is neither of their best performances. In fact, it's among the corniest for both of them. But that energy just plays into it. And Diane Cannon as this bundled up, like, nervy, you know, ready to have a nervous breakdown at any second character is really Mm -hmm. a delight to watch. Because that's, that's, the plot sort of relies upon that in a weird way. And, and she delivers that in a, in a, 
in a very stagey role, she nevertheless delivers it in a really um, human way that that lends weight to the thing that it wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so I like it. Death Trap is fun. If you like... Death Trap is super fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun play, and it, the movie is really the play straight up. You know, base, it, it tries to expand cinematically, but LeMay just doesn't break the wheel. He's like, we got something that works. Let, you know, let's just deliver it on the screen and it should be fine. And, and mm-hmm. so there's no, there's no, it's a little bit, but just the minimal amount of giving it extra scope It is mostly the play shot with, with a couple of cameras, sitcom style. And yet it still works because the play's the thing, Rachel. Yeah. 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 They're wise enough to know that. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Next up we have Blake Edwards. Good old Blake Edwards uh, directing his Yay. wife, uh, Blake Edwards uh, and Victor Victoria. Uh, I'm surprised Julia, this didn't come you... out at Oscar season, right? Yeah, uh, as far thought. as musicals from 1982 go, Victor Victoria is pretty much tops, almost, maybe not. It's in the conversation for the best one. It's a mm-hmm. widescreen period uh what they call it? We don't call it this anymore. Gen- gender bender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In 1982 <laughs> was a gender bender. Uh, sorry. That's, I'm not sure that's a respectful term. Prize Philly, gender bender. We're getting them all in. But yep. that, it, what, these were products of their era. So let's, it, this might take place in the 40s or whatever, the 20s. I can't remember where. Somewhere back there, you know, even the 30s, for 1982. The 30, yep, the 30s in Paris. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, it's a Hollywood idea of what the 30s in Paris are, but that's fun. Uh, that is genuinely fun. Um, I'm not a huge Blake Edwards fan because I just feel like the pathos isn't there ever. Right. It, it, it's yeah. just this ever on any of these. And, but for this... For Pink Panther, you know, occasionally you don't need it. You really don't. Mm-hmm. And so what? It's Then they're good. When you do and it doesn't come, they tend to be very, very... He tends to be a frustrating filmmaker to, to me. But this movie's witty and clever. And, and it's showy and it's entertaining. And um, uh, Miss Andrews is spectacularly good in it. This is, is one of her top roles of her career, without doubt. And uh, James Garner, and it's just wall-to-wall sort of other really good supporting players and stuff. The songs mm-hmm. are great. It, this turned into a relatively successful stage show because it could, because it's the stuff that they put in it is worthy of it. Yep, which I saw. I yeah, saw and I, it, it can't be bad yeah. because the show is great, but it it, it, it always makes good. me sad when they take a movie musical and turn it into a stage musical and... Sometimes even vice versa, because Can, real quick, I'll tell my favorite Victor Victoria uh, seeing this on stage because we saw it not long. You know, and this was Julie Andrews. You know, Julie Andrews was this was after she had had, you know, sort of was said, you're never going to be able to sing some, a lot of those notes that you, sure. you know, uh, you, you know, but she didn't need to for, for this. But what would happen in Victor Victoria is literally like and and, and she was and I mean, I think this was style also a st- uh, directorial choice, but she would never look the other actors. She would look at them when they're talking. But so she's listening to them, looking at them, but then she'd deliver her lines straight out to the audience and then come back and listen. 
and then do all of the lines straight out to the audience. And then the musical number would happen. She'd sing, she'd sing. And then she'd be like, and go into our dance. And then she'd run off stage and the ensemble would like seven minute dance break flips, like acrobatics, taps, legs, kicks, blah, 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 blah. And then it was like, bah, bah, Bright lights, bright lights. Julie Andrews runs on to center stage. Blackout spotlight on Julie. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, well, no, I want to applaud for everybody. But I mean, you're a living legend. So I guess it's okay. But it was, well, it was obviously, they, literally, they, everyone's in on the joke, right? I mean, that's why that works. I I don't know that everyone was in on the joke. We, I mean, it was literally, because <laughs> literally it was every number the ensemble never got to, got to take a got to got to got hold to take the button a Julie for the Andrews bow. Yeah, they they all it was always Julie Andrews runs on center and then blackout spotlight on Julie, and and it was uh, I think that's it was funny, a, but, but it was it, it, it maybe maybe seeing it now or something I would go oh yeah that's a total bit but at the time I was like what is happening What's going on? this is bonkers. Um yeah. It's a was, it's a really good movie. It's been lovingly restored. It looks amazing. It it the songs are great. It there's nothing I shouldn't say nothing. There's too little to get emotionally involved with. I just say that. And that's like mm-hmm. but that's Blake Edwards gang. I mean that's there that's not a crime. That's just not what his stuff is is about. It's it it's more cerebral and and more uh winky and more knowing and if you're okay with that sort of thing then this is if if not his best movie it's not his third best movie either it's really really good so it's and it's another big musical from 1982 so wow um and here it is in march which uh, only september really back in this era was a was a more of a dumping ground for stuff no one was gonna see march in recent memory has become a pre-summer sort of really busy movie era these days as they've as movies have run out of space but back then not so much so it really was it wasn't the award season and it wasn't the big summer season yet and 82 mm-hmm. really very much was a, a, a year of seasons so it's it, this is kind of a surprising place for it to come out but it had as far as big spectacles, it sort of had this month to itself to a certain degree too, which has value. Uh, next up is a movie I've, I've actually never seen and it's really weird and bizarre. Uh, and, you know, we all know that one of the most difficult things to do is to try to open a restaurant. Um, and, and the, the, you know, the, the dining industry can be very brutal. Um, but in our next movie, uh, we have, um, directed and written and starring Paul Bartel. Uh, we have a couple who discovers a b- bizarre, if not murderous way to get funding for opening their restaurant in eating Raul. I didn't like any of these back then. There were a bunch of these kind of black comedies, um, compromising positions is one of them. There's, there's a whole list, just like there's a, whole list of divorce movies there really is a whole list of these sort of gross things paul bartell is a, is a funny guy this is a weird story that it goes for the gold in terms of dark comedy which you have to do with dark comedy some of it is very funny but it's just 
It's it when I was this, and partly it came out in '82, and it was a big enough hit that I was aware of it. And so I, I didn't see it in '82 when I was a kid because it's not a kid's movie. But I saw it shortly thereafter, in whatever format, and I was just like, "What? Why do people like shit like this? Like I could not wrap <laughs> my brain around what. You know what I mean? Because it just yeah. black comedy is a thing for adults. It really, really is. You 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 if you're if you super like it as a kid, then Get that kid some help. Get that kid some help. <laughs> because yeah. you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't like it. You shouldn't you right. shouldn't you know who to root for. You shouldn't know what's going on. You you if you don't get the what the satirical elements are, and even in eating Raul, it's even hard to know what they are. I gotta say, it really is just um Yeah you know, Barbara Seville type stuff. And, and you have to kind of, you know, you got to, you either can cope with that or you can't. I could not yeah. when I was a kid. I still can't. So I have only bad memories of this film, but it's a significant movie that came out during this era. Um, and it's, and, and it's worth mentioning too, because at it's 40 years later. So everything has changed. Obviously it's, everything's changed. Um, I don't know how many times, a couple times per decade, the, the dynamics of film have probably changed. So, but it's not a film that, like, it, it if it came out today, its profile would be, it could exist today, but it, because it could be made for a few nickels comparatively, mm -hmm. but it, it's not a thing that would, would have, like, a, a large cinematic life, and uh, you have to talk about this at dinner parties and such, and, and this was a film that its audaciousness made it spread by word of mouth, and that doesn't happen on a grand scale anymore. It, had, it still happens with right. horror movies, and it still happens with various things, um, but it doesn't happen like it did with this in the general like movie going consciousness. So that's, it's yeah. interesting in that way. That's, and that's all I got to say about that. Get that kid some um, help for the love of get God. That, if you're, if you're like, if you have, if he's a, like, yeah, eating if you Raul, have a, mom, I just saw the best movie. Just, oh yeah. No. Okay, honey. Um, but you know, uh, so now we're into April and uh, April of course brings our second Nastasia Kinski movie. Uh, we didn't mention her earlier when she was in, uh, what was she in? She was in, I want to say One from the Heart, I think is what she, well, that technically, that's not a 1982 movie. I put it on the list, so it's, that's my yeah. fault. But I, I, missed, um, I missed that that had a late December release as well. Um, all right. Well, so we, but she, uh, she makes a splash in 1982 with Cat People. Yeah, Cat People. Paul Schrader made Cat People. Yeah. No wonder it's not good. I mean, it, it's not that it's bad. Cat People's a weird movie. Um, I remember thinking, we're in for it, man. Well, Cat People starts in ancient, I don't know, Africa or something, and there's this sort of incredible primordial vistas and everything with this panther and these people and their worshipping or whatever, and the David Bowie music, um, putting out fire is planned, and you're just like, this is going to be the greatest movie ever. But then it just sort of switches to the present and uh, she's rather vacuous people uh, arguing about things. And and it's sort of a horror movie, but I don't think it really appeals to conventional horror fans. And for a, Peter, for a Paul Schrader film, 
American Gigolo, Taxi Driver, we're talking about that sort of thing around this era. I don't think it really appealed to those people either. So it's a really, really strange mix of things that, nonetheless, because of that weird cocktail, is memorable. Even me, and I don't like cat people, It, it, it. there's scenes in it that have stuck in my head and they stayed there this whole time. And and it helps that it had that song, which is a brilliant song associated with it. Those sorts of things help elevate something and, and help it live throughout the years. And But I don't know. What, the poster is wicked cool, 1980. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a 1984 poster in 82. It's ahead of its time in the way it's got Natasha's sort of eye with this sort of weird, not quite yeah, neon, I... but whatever, paint scheme and stuff with the mm-hmm. with the... But uh, what is happening in Cat People? Read the synopsis, and for a change, we'll end with the synopsis rather than start with it. Sure. Well, you know, a young woman's sexual awakening brings horror when she discovers her urges transform her into a monstrous black leopard. There you, there you go. There you have it, folks. That sounds like yeah. your bag. Check it out. To me, there there's a lot in that one sentence that just defines the early 80s to me. Well... It's a um, remake of a much, much older, much, much better movie. Right. Um, so that's worth mentioning. But it it's it it does have I mean, it's got Natasha who's game to do just about anything. It very much from the European tradition of of, of filmmaking and stuff, and it's got Schrader who is very, very interested in making the implicit from the earlier tale explicit in this and they accomplished that. So it's, it's a remake. That's like, let's do this different. Let's do this for 1982. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I can't bring myself to truly admire it either. Um, so we, we've, we've talked about um, other movies uh, where we, we've talked about uh, in our, I think it was on our modern war or the, the, the aftermath of war, uh, uh, episode that we did, you know, these movies about coming back from from war. Coming in this case, uh, 1982, we have a a story of a man coming back from Vietnam, and uh, where you know, and, and in this case, you know, this was a Vietnam vet returning home from a prisoner of war camp, initially greeted as a hero, but is forgotten and soon discovers how tough a survival is in his own country. But let's make it funny. And let's have it star Richard Pryor. So Richard Pryor in Some Kind of Hero. This Some Kind of Hero was super making the rounds on um, on uh, Showtime when we first got cable at home. And so I watched it. I taped it on a VHS tape and watched it over and over and over again. And the early and I don't know, I haven't seen it since. So I haven't seen it since I was not 10 but since i was 14 or so and right. and i remember loving it like i remember really really liking it i don't remember it being particularly funny even though richard pryor is in it like i really remember that it's it's a prison camp movie at the beginning and it's it's definitely has pryor's improvisational stuff it's got him struggling through the 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 veteran bureaucracy issues. Mm-hmm. It's a very forward-thinking film for its time for that reason. And his wisecracks and stuff are pretty much on point, but he did a couple of movies in 1982, and and what they call, and I think this is pretty cynical, but they, what they call the beginning of the, the Richard Pryor sellout area is about to start. Yeah. This film is sort of the, and what I got, 
going. I can't remember the 1981 movie that he had just done, but these were considered sort of the last two prior vehicles that were really, that were so sociologically meaningful. And, mm. and I loved this film when I saw it, I, I watched it over and over again. And even though I watched it over and over again, over a very brief little window of my life, I liked it. I, I, I liked going on this journey with this guy. It's just, it's weird to say because it is just a comedy um, mm -hmm. a lot of my ideas about Vietnam and the Vietnam vet experience were formed by this film. And I really do believe that this film, at least on that level, on the level that a, that a kid can understand, it, it delivered that stuff. And I'm appreciative of that because I probably wouldn't have gotten going home or deer hunter at this point. I don't think I'd have been able to, you know what I mean? Like they would, yeah, it's yeah. not that they're bad. I don't know that they would have been able to keep my attention for very long. Um, this movie did because it had prior at the heart of it doing his thing, which was just reacting to the crazy people around him with his yeah. sort of wit. And, and, uh, I love, I love it for that reason. So it yeah. has a very fond place in my heart. It was like all of his films. It wasn't some huge hit, but it was a minor hit. It was like, you could count on his, bankability to this certain degree that they just kept making movies with him. Wish I could yeah, remember he, the name. He of had done Bust and Loose Bust the year and Loose. before. And before it right the year before that was Stir Crazy. Yeah. So um, But the Gene Wilder movies to me are Gene Wilder movies where Richard's along for the ride. The yeah. Bust and Loose But I mean like I'm just saying he was you know he was on a run, you know, he had he was he was yeah out there he was doing a lot of films at this at this point but bust and loose uh, and, and this then, film are very socially conscious stories and yeah. that's important because he's he's driving what he's sort of in and the, his next movie which we'll talk about in a bit but they basically pulled a big dump truck full of money up to his house and said here do this movie and it's not a bad movie, but we'll we'll again we're we're it's, not going to yeah. get to it this show. It's becoming obvious that we're not even in the summer yet, and we're more than halfway through the show. Yep. But um, but we will talk about it as part of this sequence of events and the differences. This film was it, is a really really good one from that standpoint. I don't think it's a great post Vietnam movie or anything like that, but as a socially conscious comedy, that's a comedy first. It really gets the social consciousness thing right and busting loose. Which is about different things does the same. These are two. There are two peas in a pod mm -hmm. to me, and I. They're two of my favorite. I I love the I love Silver Streak and I love Stir Crazy. Like I really love the the team up films too. But they're to me they're something slightly different. These are, these are a comedian who had something to say, and in 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 a really knowing and clever way, he let the movie say them, while he did his thing, and I just think mm -hmm. that's. I think that shows you how sort of smart and how much he got the whole celebrity Hollywood machine. I, I love that about it. So yeah, I don't think it's like uh, some great movie, but it's really, really good for what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I think it goes without saying. Um, also, uh, you're talking about it goes without saying that this is going to be a, a a two part um yeah yeah podcast today. Uh, but I think it also goes without saying that one of the finest actors of the 80s, um, of course, was Mark Singer. Um, and uh, 82 was the year of Mark Singer. That's for sure. If there ever was one. 
Yeah. And Mark Singer, you know, if you wanted to see some, if you, if you, if you questioned the acting chops of Mark Singer, this is Mark Singer playing blind. And of course, if you could see what I hear. There's another movie I saw a lot on cable and I, that I thought was awesome. This one quite certain doesn't hold up very well he actually Mm. it's the story of a real life canadian um musician tom sullivan am i saying am i getting that Uh, right give me a second here i switched to look at something real quick uh yeah tom sullivan he tom sullivan actually makes an appearance in um airport 77 he's he's I guess they had this on airplanes in 1977, <laughs> but they had a, a lounge singer who would always sit in the corner in the bar area yeah, and play you songs and stuff. And he sings the, the you know, we'll never pass this way again. What's the one from Poseidon Adventure? Uh, uh, okay, um, let's see. We shouldn't have to look that up. God damn it. We should know these things. I mean, this one is... It was made fun of in South Park. You know, it's it's one of the most famous Oscar-winning songs of all time. It's very frustrating to me. Uh, that I don't know uh, what it is uh, off the top of my head. Um, uh, the morning after. Yeah, there uh, has to be a morning after. Yeah, Thanks. Morning after. It almost feels worse now that I know what it is. Um, but anyway, he sings the that version of the song in that, and he's got this girl who's traveling on that plane who like really likes him, and he he. He doesn't make it through the movie. But the real Tom Sullivan plays this blind piano player who sings this hippie hippie piano ballad in a in a knockoff disaster movie. So he's actually part of movies and he made a few albums. But it's really weird because he's not like some sort of musical superstar. He only made a couple albums. He's an obscure guy who, you know, you can trace. It, it, this mm-hmm. is as close to the mainstream as you get. And what's weird is that when you know who Tom is, he's this rail thin, geeky looking, like David Carradine looking guy who think kind of sings like this. And, and, and Hollywood's or Hollywood, this is a Canadian film, but nevertheless, they say, you know, Mark Singer, Mr. Beefcake. And they turn him into this blind party animal in this movie. Yep. Ebert, Siskel and Ebert, put this on their worst of 1982 list. Um, they just said it, it, it's, it's trying to be a, showing you the life experience of a person, but it doesn't really show you much of the music, if any of it, which it doesn't do because Mark Singer is not very good at music. So what mm-hmm. does it show you? The life of this blind guy. And it's all sort of late seventies, early eighties, disco era, romantic hijinks. Um, yep. I liked it. I li- that was funny. There's a scene where his roommate's like, hey, man, you got your socks on the wrong foot. He's like, what? He's like, you got your socks on the wrong foot. The socks, it doesn't matter which foot you put your socks on. Because, you know, I'm really getting really pissed when they don't, you know, they just think blind people are too stupid to even know which feet to put their proper socks on. He goes, look, man, forget he goes down, he takes his socks off. And he's obviously, this guy's playing a trick on his friend. Mm-hmm. So it's like we're we're breaking down the barriers of being able to approach this blind character by having his roommate play a prank on him. And then he shows up on this date with this chick and he's like, he's all proud that he got his socks on the right feet. He's sort of like bragging about it. And she's just looking at him like, what is the matter with you? So there's this, they approach the subject of blindness and living a normal life in that way in a really cool way i guess that i liked when i was a kid but that i think has been 
it's still a bunch of seeing people playing a bunch of blind people in a film about blindness that goes out of its way to not show that it's that special not being able to see, which it feel like it doesn't really get the balance right. Mark's right. adorable in it, of course, because he's such a cool guy, but it, it it's a dumb it's a dumb, dumb movie. I'm not sure why it I is, put it here. I guess because when, it, also, when else would we ever talk about it? It is also the funny, tender, triumphant story of the re, of the remarkable story of a born winner. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not, it's, it passes the time. It's cute. Yep. It is. It, so it shouldn't be hated because it's not uh, politically correct by today's standards, which it's not. And it shouldn't be really hated because, because, um, just because it's not very good, which it isn't, because mm -hmm. it is sort of crowd pleasing and fun and pleasant enough. Uh, at least it was when I, again, when I was twelve and watching it on TV, I, I was entertained mm -hmm. by it. I, I, I laughed a lot. I got wrapped up in the romantic plot of it. You know, I was sad um, when the funny roommate character goes away, though, because he was my favorite, of course, as a kid. Sure. Um, all right. So, yeah, was that, I can't remember if it was, um, in the podcast or before the podcast, we were talking about, um, Dungeons and Dragons, a new version of Dungeons and Dragons coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, apologize if that was before we started recording. It was. Um, okay. Sorry, listener. Um, <clears throat> but we have in 1982, we had the sword and the sorcerer. The first, and it used, it, I always say it matters to be first, right? This is the this is the case where it didn't make a lick of difference that it was first. But <laughs> there is a trilogy of dark fantasy films that came out in 1982. 1982 was the year of dark fantasy. There have never been more than two in any subsequent year, and normally there's not even one. So to have three at this point in cinema history really is something else. Um, and the first one is Albert Puyan's Sword and the Sorcerer. It is by far the worst one um, <laughs> but because it's a weird dark fantasy and because it came out during this generation x you know summer of our childhood era it, it is still beloved by many and it's seen a restoration recently which is something that all of these dark fantasies can say that something like that something really good like shoot the moon can't say because <laughs> true there's just not that enough. There's just not enough medieval style magical stabbings in Shoot the Moon, and there's mm -hmm. plenty of them in Sword and the Sorcerer. Sword and the Sorcerer is kind of fun, but it's really dirt cheap and really crappily made. Albert Puyen is a guy who only makes crappy schlock, but he has had a career of making crappy schlock because he makes crappy schlock about as good as anybody. His next, this is his best movie probably, and his next best movies. Jean-Claude Van Damme's Cyborg, to give you an idea of what kind uh, of film you're getting into. There we are. Yeah, so it's, you know, so... But back in the days... This is sort of the home video era, but back in the days before straight-to-home video era, uh, this sort of thing, to get this made, to get it out into theaters anywhere, I mean, it was not an easy thing to do. You had to have a lot of know-how. You know, it's not bad. It's fun, but it's the first and worst of the of the dark fantasies we shouldn't spend too much time on it yeah let's move because let's move on to may because we're now we're going to start getting into the uh the some of the summer summer yep. movies um and uh and we're going to kick off uh may may of 1982 
right out of the gate, we get um, one of the movies that launched a gajillion careers, and that's uh, Barry Levinson's Diner. Yeah, Diner. I just revisited Diner. I bought Diner on Blu-ray for the first time, so I don't know why I didn't have it. That seemed like a movie I'd have bought right when it came out. But hey, I waited. I waited until it was only six bucks. So woo, score. Um, Diner's a weird movie. It's beloved. Joel really, really likes Diner. I've never, I've never been able to really, really like it. Yeah, you bring it up, don't you? Don't you like Diner? I I mean, I like Diner. Yeah, I like Diner fine. I've never really, really like it. No, 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 no. I mean, it's not like, oh my god, I love that. No, it's it's. I mean, the I, neat thing fun. about I, it is, it is a bunch of young people whose careers yeah. were launched by it, and they are all cast in these roles that they they either were cast exactly right to type, or they just made it their type. Either yeah. way, it works, and so and you and you get this sort of retrospective like a bunch of movie stars from different eras looking back on this thing, talking talking about it is a delight because you hear them talking about each other when they were young people. My favorite, although there's a bunch, we'll just we'll rattle through them. Why not? We're not going to make it yeah, much sure, past sure. the end of May. And we may do a Barry Levinson show, but Levinson's so... He's a yeah, Levinson. Levinson started his career as a writer, and the, it's the writing, not the filmmaking, and diner that's so awesome. And of course, it's the improv, really. It's the way it feels real because it's <clears throat> a lot of it is right. just made up. These guys were given the freedom uh, exclusively in the diner scenes where they were almost exclusively just saying stuff. Um, but in even in the other scenes, they were given the freedom that if you think of something, do it, and we'll figure it out. And it has that loose feel to it. And yet, you know, so for a coming-of-age ensemble film, it doesn't really tell a very clean, clear story. But it's really neat to me that Levinson, who was an Oscar-nominated screenwriter up to this point, making his directorial debut, made a film that's so full of improv because you'd think he'd fall back on the writing, you know... And it's weird that as his career progressed, he wrote less and less to the point that he almost didn't write ever. He just directed other people's writing. And he's not, no offense, he's good. He, he's got a, his filmography is as good as anybody, so he's a good director. But he's not some great director where the directing's the thing you show up to the movie for. Right. You always show up for the story. He's a storyteller, kind of like Ron Howard is, or somebody like like that. Yeah, so. Yeah. So it's it's weird that there's so much improv in this, but it's it's what makes it sing. It's so great. Yeah. Um, Kevin Bacon said he couldn't improv at all, and he was just was so intimidated. And what he realized his out was was that his character was so such a dullard compared to some of these other guys that he really just had to sit there and listen. And if he listened well, he would get enough reaction shots and his presence would be felt in the movie without having to do all the improv work. Because he said, trying to trying to improv, even if you could think of something, trying to improv with Paul Reiser in the room was impossible. Yeah. You, you were not fast enough for him. And Reiser's not even one of the main five characters. He's not even shown in the tableau at the end of the movie. Right. But he's so good at improvising that he took over the diner scenes and became a main character in a way that the movie just wasn't ready to fully accept by the time they finished editing it. But it was really true when you watch it. Riser's stunningly good in it. Yeah, I believe I brought... You know, that's how Diner has been brought up before. I, I'm, I'm remembering gushing about Paul Riser 
um, in this because I I've just been a Paul Reiser fan forever. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I mean, let, 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 let's quick list it. Steve Gutenberg, Mickey Rourke, Kevin Bacon, Daniel Stern, Tim Daly, Ellen Barkin, Paul Reiser. Um, yeah, it's, and, and uh, the other name I would say, although it's not part of the group, but it's Michael Tucker, Michael Tucker. Yeah. Uh, ba Baltimore native who <laughs> brings the Baltimore right when you need it. It's very clever. He was cast. He was cast because he and Tucker's a guy who's got a long career in TV and film and and doesn't speak with a Baltimore accent, but because he was born and raised there, he could he could hit right. it and he does and it's fun. Um, but yeah, it's so those are the names. A really good group of names. Um, Tim Daly's a little awash in it because he's kind of the generic leading guy of it, and yep. the film, like I say, I think was ostensibly supposed to be about him. But these other bigger personalities sort of took over the thing all around him. But it takes a certain kind of leading man confidence, I have to say, that Daly has, because he's a good actor, to stay at home and do your thing and make sure that your thing's coming across in the movie, because the movie needs that. Um, but it's funny, again, listening to Daniel Stern and Steve Gutenberg talk about Mickey Rourke was fascinating, because they thought he sucked. <laughs> he's not doing anything. He's not making any choices. Nothing's happening. And then when they saw the movie, they realized it's us that suck. <laughs> he, understood, he understood that the camera is just a couple feet away from him and every little thing he does is going to be there on screen in a way Gutenberg was joking around. He's like, I'm not sure I ever really learned that lesson. You know, right. obviously Stern and Goots are... They're all kind of all-time muggy sort of actors, so <laughs> so they're so being self-deprecating in the moment. They're yeah. fantastic in the film. They don't suck, but it it but it's funny that they're like they just realize oh that's we all thought we were you know act acting circles around this guy, and what we realized mm -hmm. was that's the dude, that's the movie star. We're just a bunch of clowns. That's the guy who gets it. That's Bogart, you know what I mean? That's the that's all that stuff that he just and it's true. You watch Rourke in it and he just kind of mumbles through the whole thing, but his presence is so powerful and before you know before he's had a career that he should be proud of actually, but it but he's had such a weird personal story intermixed with his with his acting career that he, that he's a weird cat. He's remembered for that stuff almost as much as anything and to watch him as a young man, you know, cause he'd been in other things. He'd been at a bunch of other things up to this, but this is where the, that Mickey work character, where if you're going to use this guy, use him like this, this is where he first appears and it's stunning. Um, Gutenberg's very fun as sort of insecure guy. Um, Stern is fantastic. I, I mean, He's almost annoying, but he's supposed to be annoying. His scenes with him and Barkin as newlyweds are, are annoying, but but they're kind of great too. It it's a really fun. It's they call it a coming of age movie. It's got a great tagline, like where they realized, you know, life wasn't going to be what what it had been to that point. Suddenly, suddenly, life was more than French fries, gravy, and girls. Yeah. There you go. Canadians like that because they love gravy on their French fries. They love fries. gravy on their fries. I, I, I assume Maryland people do as well, or that wouldn't be in there. Or uh, maybe yeah. it's just a late 50s thing. Either way. Well, maybe, are they talking a, about gravy? Are they talking about gravy in the Italian sense where, you know, any. There's any a whole. Gravy. 
pile of these baby boomers reliving their their youth, you know, yep. and their adult awakenings. Uh, the a film, a, a very much an '82 film that actually came out in '81 was Porky's, which everybody loved and was a huge hit. Diner wasn't, and Diner. My God, I mean, it's so much better a movie. It's it, not only that. I'll go so far as to say it's a, it's an it's a demonstrably better film than even those celebrated ones like Big Chill and stuff because it yeah. really does let these guys be in a way, and you really do experience them as people, and that's what's great about it. So, but it is a mm-hmm. bit of a mess. It's not a cleanly told story with a nice three act structure or anything. It's a bit of a mess. They they. They were brave enough to let the magic happen, and it happens, but it it doesn't it it doesn't mm-hmm. happen in a way that where you feel where the payoffs are and all that. You know, it's just that's not part of it. That's not part of the experience. So, but I like Diner. Turns out I like it more than I thought. I just pretty much yeah. talked it up, didn't I? I can't find anything bad to say about it. I think I just don't like baby boomers strucking each other very much, and I tend to I tend to resist that. You really have to do something different. To get me to go, oh, okay, cool. I get mm-hmm. that that's where we're, that's where we are. It's the boomers that are making films during 1982. They made the films that influenced us the most. We can't deny that. But, yeah, yeah. but when that, you know, Eddie and the Cruisers and it's, yeah. just all those films where it's just like, remember when, you know, I'm just like, you guys. Oh, man. yeah. 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 Um, American Graffiti. Um, I really like American Graffiti. So that's one that transcends it. It, it, it's, it, it becomes more than just, uh, what's the tagline for that? Where were you in 62? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it really is, hey, boomers, let's travel back in time and relive a more yeah, innocent well, time. Hop on the whip. Yeah, I just well, thought during the cocaine and disco era, watching movies like that was cynical exercise. and You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's this great, uh, and I promise I'll move on. There's a great tube song. And the tubes are a bunch of baby boomers, but they get it. Yeah, yeah. There's this great tube song that it's called Don't Touch Me There. And it's, it's, it, what it sounds like is Leader of the Pack. So it, it has this, this yeah. travel back in time to a more innocent, you know, era of storytelling. But, but it, it's trapped in the late 70s where all that innocence is gone and it is not coming back and it juxtaposes those two two ideas in this glorious way that just just screams the hypocrisy of it all and i adore that song for that reason because i'm like yes start living up to it you know start living up to what you are y'all about to vote for reagan twice and make a jillion dollars like i don't really give a shit that you protested vietnam at some point you know live Mm -hmm. it live it or die and I'm still very uncompromising in that way. <laughs> I'm still an angry Generation X kid, and I can't help it. As am I. And, Screw uh, you, bummer. I'm, yeah. And I'm up yours, Brenda. I, yep. Um, so uh, growing up, when uh, my, my grandpa had a cabin, and you know we would go up there almost every weekend when we were, when we were growing up. Um, and uh it was and it was great and one of the kind of one of the tradition things that we would do would would be head into dean's supermarket in osseo which is where my dad my dad worked and we would go in there and my brother and i would immediately head over to the comic book section and we'd find a couple comic books 
uh, and one of the and to bring up to the cabin to to read in case it rained. And one of the comics that was a must grab, and it was my dad's. You know, it was the only comic book I ever saw my dad pick up and read, and that um, and that was Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> and by crom, he was excited when this movie um, when this was coming out as a movie. Yeah. Oh, did you see so, this yeah, as so, a nine year old, as an impressionable nine year old? I did. Well, maybe we. I'll, I'll get to it um, when we get into June, um, because I saw the I saw, <laughs> saw this it with part a of double, a double feature. feature. Yeah, okay. That's with the double feature. Um, um, but yeah, June eighty-two. The... Holy Moses. Um, yeah. So, but here we are, still at the beginning of May. Uh, we've talked about Conan the Barbarian on the show. We talked about the power of Oliver Stone. We talked about the power mm-hmm. of John Milius. Um, uh, interesting couple of guys because Milius's films are accused of being very very fascist and Oliver obviously is known as sort of the the um the hippie who's the hippie who went to war but basically stayed true to those ideals when they when it was very unpopular to and mm-hmm. so they're a weird mix but what they're both attracted to is the storytelling of the author who who wrote the Conan stories I can't remember his name uh they are uh Robert E Howard yeah, so, and he'd been kicking around for a while, and so had these dark fantasies, and 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 Conan's fantastic, you know, the Basil Polidurus music, um, the sort of weird, uncompromising, greasy, muscular masculinity of the thing, um, it, uh, and uh, Schwarzenegger's absolute lack of irony. Everybody in this thing has a sort of whatever moment, you know. They they play it pretty straight. James Earl Jones, Max Boncito, you know, they're not they're not goofing around, but they there's right. something about it that it it that the thing is a put on, and the, what makes it work is the absolute one hundred percent weird earnestness with which he which with Schwarzenegger tackles this material and. And that's why, by the end of it, it matters. If it weren't for that, I'm not sure what we would have. And I, I, I still am compelled by for that reason, you know. And I do think mm-hmm. um, I can't remember the name of the character. The woman, the actor is great, and she looks like Valkyrie from the Conan comics, but she yeah. isn't. She's the other one, and I can't remember the name. She's of... uh, Sandal Bergman yep. is her uh, is her name uh, is uh, the actor uh, the actor's name, and uh, and it is I want to say Valeria. Um, why can't it? Where is it here? Yeah, here we go. Uh, yeah, Valeria. Yeah, so that's fine. Um, it's she's very much Valkyrie. Kiri, though I, I don't mm-hmm. mind if you don't mind saying that's the it's not just the way she looks but she very much looks not like valeria but she is all the traits of her even but they used the valeria name because why not that's fine that's the yeah. more that's the more common uh main squeeze for conan i'm getting off the rails a little bit though that tends to happen when we get into fantasy and sci-fi of the early days um <laughs> yep i apologize for that we all know what Conan is. I don't know. We talked about it before on the show. It's it it it's. It, we've talked about our preference for the other fantasy movie that's just like Conan that came out in the same year. And no, we're not talking about Sword and the Sorcerer. Um, <laughs> but that's not to deny what Conan is. Conan's the big widescreen, big budget, big studio. It's 
it's really not a universal picture. It's a Dino De Laurentiis picture, so it has that right. vibe to it. But shot on location in Italy and 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 Spain and play, parts of Europe that really still can look fairly medieval. And mm-hmm. it's just got lots of cool excitement. It's got for a, a film that's so self serious. It's got plenty of humor, tons of violence, uh, some really really bad guys. I told you all my favorite when we were reliving my. What's the name of the surfer guy who plays his sidekick in it? He's hilarious in it. Uh, Not really acted uh, in a whole bunch of things. He was sadly replaced in the sequel. Um, uh, yeah, what is his name? Because uh, uh, of course they only have everybody in their old old. Um, um, yeah, that's okay. It old face, old. I was like, they're old face photos. Uh, <laughs> but there was like, yeah, there's Ben Davidson. Yeah, he's uh, a bad guy. Yeah, he's, he's the, the big, bad guy. Big bad guy. Uh, Sven Oli Thorson was the little bad guy. Gary, it's gotta be. Is it, it is Gary. Gary yes, it is Gary yeah. Lopez. He's not an actor. He's more. Fa- he's famous for being a world class surfer. Um, yes, he is, yeah. but both Stone and, and Milius were California or kids. Milius certainly was, and it was a big fan of Lopez. Milius wrote the surf stuff in Apocalypse Now. So he's super into surfing and that's why Lopez is in this movie and Lopez is cute in it. He, it's almost, you could argue you're, he's needed. He shows up at a point in the movie where we need somebody to goof yeah. around a little bit because what we've seen, this origin story is... Ugh. It's a little yeah. It's it's him. It's him and Mako that kind of yeah. get to. And do I think a it's Mako that has the line when they're talking about the bad guys, and he's like, "Yeah, but they, they came along and blah blah blah." At first, we thought, "Oh, it's just another snake cult." And I, <laughs> yep, I love that line. <laughs> I love that line that we're. It just reminds you in a not expositional way that we're in a world where snake cults are a dime a dozen. And that's 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 the world of the story. That's the age before the, the Bronze Age. That's the, the age we're in, the end of the Stone Age, more or less, beginning of the Bronze Age. And, and I love it. I love that line. I love the weird snake cult stuff. I love how they got to bring down the cult. I love how without condemning it necessarily, all they do is witness it and be disgusted by it. Like there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of chit chat in this film. <laughs> it's pretty mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> so it really is on the power of its visual storytelling, you know. And and it's got all these dozens of lines. Um, you know, contemplate this on the tree of woe. <laughs> yeah, that's such a great line. I still say that to people. I say that to Packers fans when they lose. <laughs> um, that said, back then I wouldn't have wanted to, and now I would want to even less watch this like alongside a, a woman that I had respect for. <laughs> sure, yep. you know what I mean? Because it's it's this gross sort of made for little twelve year old boys rated R like ickiness that's very much pervades it, and yet it's. It is sort of what brings it its power as well. It's a it's a it's a comic book movie before before comic book movies were for everybody necessarily, mm-hmm. and that's that is cool. So, and Millie, you know, Millius, Oliver Stone, uh, De Laurentiis, these guys are preeminent filmmakers making this corny story, and it 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 has real cinematic power because of that. Even though it's there's nothing special necessarily about the way it's shot or anything. Nope. It just, it just, it has that barrel forward sort of male competence to it. Yeah, 
if you were a fan of the comic books, I, you you probably dug this film. I I, I mean, I certainly did. My yeah. dad, I mean, my family certainly did. Um, all right. Next up, we have a movie that we've talked about. Uh, we talked about in our last um, double feature episode. Was it? Our, no, or a couple double feature episodes ago. Um, and that was Annie. Annie. Uh, Annie. I don't know that we need Another to talk musical. too much about Annie. Yeah. Another musical. period musical. Yeah. John Huston directing this um, the year after he made his, uh, um, it, it, to me, his finest film. And that, of course, was Escape to Victory. <laughs> um but uh yeah annie i mean it's annie it's fine uh, i will say i mean i i didn't you know in terms of an adaptation of a stage show uh it again it's it's great sort of over the top you know uh sets and world building and all and and, and the, the songs are great um uh, you know if if you well, like annie you're gonna love annie's a really really good musical and here yep. finally uh is an event movie and a family movie, and it's I you, know, you wouldn't call it an action movie, although there's plenty of big mm-hmm. cinematic action in it. Actually, surprisingly, um, yep. for the girls, you know, in the neighborhood, and yep. they l- adored this film. They yep. they were living it. I couldn't hang out with the girls in my town without playing Annie. You know what I mean? It, you just had to roll with it because they were all obsessed with it. And, yeah. and rightfully so, because the songs are fantastic. The show's always been good. The characters, like that rags to riches fantasy, is is never been told better, in my opinion, than here. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, not in this movie specifically, but in that story of Annie, the musical, uh, and the, the comic strip. And everybody giving it their all. I think it's really, really important that, um, I can't remember the woman's name in it, we lost her recently too, and she's a fantastic actor. And Ryan King. And Ryan King and, and, and Albert yeah, Finney. A, yeah, but uh, Ryan, King, Ryan King. Finney it, is great in it, but Ryan King mm-hmm. in particular is. Uh, it's hard to yeah. explain, but she just she slips right into this movie and is and yep. belongs. Finney, Carol Burnett, Tim Curry, Burnett Peter. I mean, yeah, they're they're all good. But like, and I said this, I said this when we when we did the double feature episode. I am so thankful that this movie exists if for no other reason that it captured the unbelievable talent of Anne Ryan King. Um, she's been in a couple so of movies, good. but she was a stage star and yeah. an incredible dancer. But what you get to see here in front of the camera is what a subtle and capable actor that she could be when she wanted to be and how she just could really do it all. Hollywood, Broadway, it's all the same. They figure out what you are and they just, you're that, you're that from now on. Mm-hmm. What did Colin Quinn say to, uh, to um, what's his face? They, they were doing a lawyer sketch and they made um, Will Ferrell dress up like an elf. And halfway through the sketch, Ferrell breaks down. He's like, why am I dressed like an elf? There's not, this is a, it's about lawyers and stuff. I don't understand what's going on here. And Colin Quinn's like, you're the elf now. No. no. <laughs> to me, that's Hollywood in a nutshell. You're, yep. you're, the, you're the elf now. You were the a big now. hit as the elf. Now you're the elf. It's so easy to get pigeonholed and to watch her do it all. It's and like you say, it's not. She's among titans, <laughs> Carol yep. Burnett and Tim Curry and Bernadette Peters. My God, what did Michael say when the song started? The Easy Street started. They're like, he's like, oh my God, it's happening. <laughs> when you're <laughs> when you're when you're steeped in stage and and musical theater lore, 
it, it really is something to see those three people do that song. It's, the song's not even, it's great, but it's not even really one of the highlights of the show per se, but it, 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 it's happening. That's the feeling you get when you're watching the thing. You know, uh, Ed, yeah. is it Ed Herman plays Roosevelt in it? <laughs> yep. That's so good. It's so good. It, so this film, I don't know, it was a top 10 movie, 82, so I'm not sure why it was considered a disappointment. It was for ages. And, and disappointment in our modern vernacular quickly becomes flop, and then that sticks to you like glue. Mm-hmm. This was a big hit in the era. It was not critically acclaimed, but it was critically accepted as a pretty good movie. And that's right where it belongs. It, it is a really good movie. It isn't something to be cynical about when you go back and watch it. Um, some racial politics and stuff aside, which are can get a little gooey in it, without doubt. Um, it's still it's still really good. I, I dig yeah. it. I like it. Yeah. Um, all right. Next up is and uh, hats I, off to everyone who worked on it because apparently Houston only showed up like half the time or something. Sure. That's another where I shouldn't be. Well, I shouldn't be promoting the legend when we don't really know if that's true or not. But right. legend says they made this by guessing um, what he would have wanted when he wasn't there. <laughs> I think it's well, funny. That tracks. Uh, all right. Uh, next up is uh, a sequel to uh, the the uh, the. Well, I'm, I'm I'll be curious to say. I'm just going to say the title because I want to I want to hear your thoughts. Mm. Uh, Mad Max Two: The Road Warrior. Ah. Well, The Road Warriors may be the greatest action movie ever made. It certainly got the greatest stunt-based action chase in all of film ever, and even to this day, because nothing like what happens in the last 20 minutes of Road Warrior would even be attempted today. They made another Road Warrior movie who's a modern one, whose action is mm -hmm. as impressive, if not more impressive, but it's not the same because it wasn't really done in the same you're there hanging off the side of the car way that they made these films. Mad Max was an, a stunning sort of revenge tale. I guess the, only the last few minutes are a revenge tale, but it's a stunning sort of civilization hanging on by its fingernails. Um, punk aesthetic. It was the first widescreen movie made in Australia. And the sequel was just gonzo, homoerotic, like leather loincloth sort of angry punk rock cynical action it's full of great humor um gibson plays the same guy from mad max but he's not he's wearing kind of the same thing but he's not and he's driving the same car but he's not really recognizable this is a, this is a dude who's completely lost his humanity and even by the film's end has only regained a sliver of it he's a survivor in the wasteland because of his lack of humanity Sorry. and that that's that's what i love about it i that, that's what we loved about it as kids we just kind of you watched it and you couldn't believe what you were seeing every scene had something some weird decapitation or some strange bit of horror, some weird piece of humor. Um, not to mention the scale of it is incredible. This, the, mm -hmm. the way George Miller pulls the, the widescreen camera all the way back so that the action is happening with these tiny stick figures while our heroes sort of look on. Um, 
There's no better post-apocalyptic movie. We will do a Mad Max deep dive someday. That will be the full three, if not four episodes. We will have mm-hmm. some special guests along for the ride on that, no doubt, or they'll come to our homes and strangle us for not including them. <laughs> um, but this is the one. This is the one. If there would only yeah. can watch one, this is it. This is yeah. this is the one where it all happens, and I don't know what else to say about it. It's 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 extraordinary action. It's really bleak and awful. It's really grisly and exploitative and nasty. So it's it's not for everybody, but um, I love it nonetheless. It's 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 so it's quotable. Every line from it. Yeah. You know what I mean? The 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 comic relief, the dog sidekick. I mean, every, everything about it you love. The even the guy, even the mechanic sidekick who only repeats what the mechanic says. Um, Arky, the the cute uh, blonde girl in it, and 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 Virginia, the uh, the badass warrior woman, and yep. Richard Preston quoting the the '70s prime minister of Australia to motivate people is hilarious. Um, Vernon Wells, you know, it's jumping yeah. from moving vehicle to moving vehicle is unbelievable. Uh, the little kid who, the feral kid who can't speak and is, is dynamite and exciting to watch everything on the screen. The, mm-hmm. the toady who, uh, his sole job is to be hype man for the warrior of the universe. The main bad guy who literally moves around like a giant he-man figure when he talks. The humongous. Yeah. It is just got a giant pile of awesome stuff yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> and this is I mean, one yeah. where and I, I don't know why i don't feel the same way as about conan a lot of people do they have a similar aesthetic but this is the one where even to this day yeah say what you want about it but i, I it's my it's my brother and i love it yep. and, and yep. I'm, I'm sticking with it so uh all right let's finish out may and finish out this episode um with carl reiner's dead men don't wear plaid <laughs> <laughs> Starring Steve Martin, uh, Rachel Ward, and a whole bunch of uh, classic film noir people kind of cut and interspersed in. Well, it's it's Carl Reiner. You forget that Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks were making movies alongside each other, and they, they would kind of mm-hmm. share this, the same kind of goofiness. They're from that same part of history, basically. They started out as comedy writers uh, when, basically, back in the days when TV was like vaudeville, and if you didn't keep people laughing every two seconds, you were just booed off the stage and into a whole nother career. Yeah. Um, and they, so they, they, they just don't breathe much between jokes. And I've I, even, w- w- even though I appreciate both guys, um, I've never been able to fully embrace that style of thing. I just. I just haven't been able to do it. I don't, I'm not sure why. Uh, yeah. It's it's just it is very much from a different era, even though it's hilarious. It's like today the equivalent would be, you know, like a Family Guy episode. Like I'm not a I don't like Family Guy. I don't I don't dislike it, but I don't love it. But it's got so many jokes in it that you laugh at. Even if you just laugh at a third of them, you're pretty much laughing the whole time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So that that's that's what Deadman can't wear play at. It's similar Carl Reiner projects, similar like Mel Brooks movies. Mel Brooks, a little bit, as he got more sophisticated storyteller, a little bit 
better at making fun of the form of something. So Frankenstein's very much a a a a, a parody, or Blazing Saddles is maybe the best mm-hmm. example, kind of the perfect parody of what an old school western would be, with yeah. all this extra stuff layered on it. And that to me is more interesting. So as a result, I would say the Dead Man Can't Wear Plaid because it's a parody of a of a noir film with Steve. Martin still at his zaniest joke a second persona. This era of the jerk, and there's a whole there's a string of them of which this is very much a part of that string of films. Um, he's not uh, he's not yet shown us at least on a regular basis that he's going to balance dramatic work with comic work or anything. He's mm-hmm. He's, a, mm-hmm. he's a flat out c- clown in these films, and. I, I like Dead Men Can't Wear Plaid almost, I don't know if it's the funniest, but I like it the best because I love the black and white photography. I love that it's making fun of a form that even though I wasn't into it in the golden age of noir Hollywood, I can appreciate that for what it is. Um, it wasn't a super big hit because it's a little out of touch. 82 is where it's us, it's the kids, it's the 10 and 12 year old kids that are taken over and and not not the the old people who kind of want to watch this sort of throwback style of thing, and I don't think Steve Martin was really for them either. But right, but I I dig Don't Man, uh, Dead Man Can't Don't Wear Plaid. Yeah. I love the title. Did you you like this? Didn't you? When I I, yeah, I remember liking this movie a lot when I was when I was a kid. Uh, I have not seen it in forever, uh, so I don't know if I would. If still, it holds up, right? If it holds up, or if I, if, yeah. if I still would, it, or even if I would enjoy it from a nostalgia perspective of like, oh yeah, I remember. Like, there's a, I just the only real memory I have is there's something about a breast adjustment or something like that <laughs> right. joke that that is revisited at the end. And I just, that's like literally, and I, I'm kind of ashamed that that's really the only thing I remember about it, but that's like, that's like the bit. And I remember it's like turned on its head at the, at the end. Joel was a um, boob man, even at the age of nine. Not, it's that's, uh, I'm not, I cannot, uh, I cannot deny. Uh, <laughs> I, will, I will not confirm nor deny that that is indeed um, uh, something, but I, I, but I, but more, what I do remember is that they, you know, the joke getting flipped on its head at the end. Because yeah. like Steve Martin gets a boob, adju- you know, right, like a right, breast right. adjustment or something like that, and it is, and it's a bit, and and I, you know, I remember that. So, yeah. um, uh, yeah, so that's uh, Carl Reiner. Um, I mean, Deadwind don't. He, yeah, Carl I, it's it, the if you if you take him out of the equation, the amount of laughs that go with him are are in the hundreds of thousands. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, so I really do like appreciate what that's all about. That we're gonna make you laugh. I, I, I love it. It's a weird place for this particular show to end, but it it's you know I just you got to give a shout out to him and really that whole crew. There's a film that comes later in the year that's beloved by many that is really a tribute to those guys when they were younger. Um, that really really sings and. Uh, on the final note, because we're about out of time, I want to thank everybody for writing in um, yeah. what your favorite things of 82 was. That was an exciting thread for us to read, because normally we ask a question and we the, only the crickets basically answer back. <laughs> so it was very, very fun to get yeah. to see people's choices. I want to reassure everybody, if you didn't hear your favorite movie in 1982 – 
yet that you wrote in about. It's yeah. because it hasn't come out yet in 1982. Every single we got film six that was, more months. Yeah. yeah, every single film that was uh, brought up in there is coming up and is going to be talked about. So indeed. So indeed. thanks for those response. You got a mm-hmm. if, you got a whole uh, you got a whole another week here to write in some more if if more cross your mind. We'll obviously yeah. we'll leave that up. Absolutely. Um, so, all right. So feel free to reach out to us at the movie show with Joel and Ryan page on Facebook at ask Joel and Ryan on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and ask Joel and Ryan at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us for once again, for this little trip in the way back machine. Uh, and we will continue it next month or next week. I should say we will continue it. We will talk, uh, we will start um, in the lovely month of June, June 1982, here it comes, baby. Wow. Um, but until, yeah, and, and believe me, it's quite a June. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.